Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, we are going to be talking about Matthew chapter 11 today. Uh, before we dig into that, I want to go back um, and actually read a few passages from Matthew 1034. Um, just because last week I read through them and afterwards it was it's kind of heavy on my heart because those are some heavy passages and I felt like they needed a little bit more, um, just wanted to dig in a little bit deeper to those. So I hope you don't mind that we're going to just start out with a little bit of going backwards before we go forwards, but we'll be covering all of Matthew 11. Uh, so why don't you bow your heads with me and let's pray before we uh, open up the word. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this time that we have to study your word, to come together. Lord, I pray that you will bless this time. Um, for each and every single person that's, that's watching and listening right now, that uh, you will open up our hearts and our minds to your word, to your Bible, to the specific passages that you uh, have us looking at today that uh, the Apostle Matthew uh, wrote some 2,000 years ago, but are still present and relevant to us today. Lord, I pray that you will keep distractions to the minimum as we're doing this and that uh, you'll speak through me. Praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Awesome, guys. Okay. We are, I'm going to go back and I'm going to read just real quick and we're going to go over uh, Matthew 10, 34. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. That's a tough passage. And the reason why it's tough is because it forces us as believers to choose. And I was thinking about why after doing the study last week, I felt... Um, just I felt not off, but I felt uh, a little bit challenged by it. And the thing that was challenging by it was is that I had to make a choice. Because on the one hand, um, as does everybody, what this is calling you to do is to choose your priorities. And sometimes, um, for me personally, I don't like conflict. I don't like uh, people disagreeing. And I don't like disagreeing with people. I don't like having arguments with people. I like having active discussions with believers about, about elements. And I love answering questions that people might have about the Bible or what, um, what it says, etc. But if one of my good friends doesn't believe what I believe, um, it's a challenge for me, as I do believe it is with all believers, to... How do you confront that person? How do you share what is so personal to you and so meaningful in your heart without offending them, without um, causing a division? And what Jesus is saying here is, is that you are going to have division. And I don't believe the same things that my parents believe. And, and so part of me wants to be like, no, you have to believe, you have to believe. But the other part of me is like, they're my parents. And I want to make sure that when I interact with them and when I see them, that um, there isn't this awkward um, thing that's there. Because I want to, when I, when I talk to them or see them, I want it to be great. I don't want them to have anything in, in the air in between. And that's the problem is because by me doing that, what I'm doing is I'm putting them first as opposed to putting Jesus first. So um, l let me give a few verses here. So um, there's... 
some conflict here. This passage might, from some people's perspective, be a contradiction. This might be an example where uh, a skeptic might say the Bible contradicts itself, and this might be one of the ways that they say it contradicts itself. Why? Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Okay, well then you have Isaiah 9:6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Another, uh, I'm gonna give you three examples. Luke 2:14. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Another passage is John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Those are three passages, uh, one in the Old Testament and two in the New, uh, that specifically talk about the peace that Jesus brings. So then Jesus says, do not, I didn't come to bring peace to the earth. This is the very strong distinction that I want to make real quick before we get into 11, is that to the believer, Jesus brings peace. Why? Because he solves the dilemma of your soul. You have resolution, righteousness, imputed righteousness. We are righteous because of Christ. By Christ coming down and dying for our sins, we can have peace in our hearts. And if we focus on Jesus, no matter what storm we're going through, we can be at peace with it. We can handle the tribulation that we, is thrown on us and we can be at peace. That's the peace that these passages are talking about, that Jesus does provide peace to the believer. But Jesus is saying here, he didn't come to bring peace on earth. He came with a sword. And that's a very important thing to note. Why did he come with a sword? He came with the sword to battle for us, to battle for his beloved, for mankind, for his, his, his children. And so he comes with the sword and causes division because he, you have to decide. You're in one of two camps. That's it. You're either a follower of Jesus and a believer or you're not. And the thing is, is that that opponent's camp, very strongly, his perspective is to say, well, no, 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 no. I, I, I'm not... I'm not an atheist. I'm not a, I don't, I don't worship Satan. I believe in God, um, but I'm not as crazy as those uh, evangelical Christians that, that are those bigots, those, those people who are so narrow-minded. You got to be careful because you're on one side or the other. And that's what Jesus is talking about here is, is that he brings the sword to fight for us. That's the point, is that there is a battle going on that exists to this day that is Satan is trying to bring as many people with him into an everlasting relationship with him as opposed to with God up in heaven. And so he knows his future, and he's trying to bring as many of us with him as he can. So uh, one more passage to mention. So... He comes to bring a man against his father, a daughter against her mother. Um, I actually got to have a, a wonderful chat with a, a woman who goes to church with me, but also um, 
Uh, I'm getting to photograph our team is uh, shooting uh, her daughter's wedding coming up, which I'm very excited for. And so she came to the, the studio just to chat just a little bit. And we had a wonderful conversation. Uh, we, we spent a little bit of time talking about uh, weddings, but we spent most of the time talking about um, this question of family and this question of um, the, this specific verse, because it was right after I'd given the talk last Wednesday Good grief, dog, that is so much fur. Uh, it was right after the talk this past Wednesday, and so it was heavy on my heart, and I was, uh, we were talking about that. And the one thing that got brought up that was really cool, uh, I wanna flip over Matthew 13. Um, actually, no, right at the end of Matthew 12. We'll be talking about this either next week or the week after that. Probably the week after that, because Matthew 12 has a lot. Matthew 12, 48. So what happens is, is that Jesus is talking, and... Um, his mom and brothers show up outside, and this is what happens. Um, one of the disciples told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to speak to you. Jesus is in the middle of having a conversation and teaching with his disciples. And Jesus says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And the discussion that, that I had... Um, in that conversation is the reality that, yes, you might have division in your family because of this, because of Jesus. You might be at odds with your parents. Um, you might be at odds with your siblings. But as a believer, you are part of a much, much larger family, a family that uh, is the most diverse family in existence, um, part of this family of believers are members of every tribe, of every nation, uh, man, woman, kids, 90-year-olds, they're all in this family. And, and the thing that's amazing is to the believer, and I'm guessing this is the case for many out there, for me personally, there's times when you meet somebody and I meet someone, let's say uh, I'm on a shoot vocationally, I'm photographing something and I meet someone and it's just like, I just know. You just know that they're a believer. And there's just something that's there. And I can't, it's not tangible. It's just something that's there. And I believe that what that is, is the Holy Spirit resides in, in, in us as a believer. You have your whole, your, your, your body is a vessel for the Holy Spirit. And I believe that when you meet somebody else who is a believer, your Holy Spirit inside you, the Holy Spirit, not your Holy Spirit, Total difference. The Holy Spirit inside you feels that and knows that they're, that they're a believer. It's, they're a family member. They're a brother. They're a sister. So you have that joy. And, and even though we do have that division that Jesus does bring among families, know that as a believer, you are part of a much, much larger family. And that family cares about you. That's a tangent before we've even gotten into it. So now we're going to get into Matthew 11. We're going to talk about John the Baptist. And uh, we're going to finish up with a phenomenal uh, call out to the Jews of the day, but it is very appropriate for us today. So why don't we continue on uh, Matthew 11, verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, that's John the Baptist, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect 
someone else. Jesus, Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So what's going on here? This is really interesting because John the Baptist is questioning if Jesus is the Messiah. Do you get that? Do you see that? This is the same John the Baptist who, when he first sees him and baptizes him, says, I, I should be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, let's do this to fulfill all righteousness. So when John the Baptist first meets, first meets Jesus, he says, this is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. Follow him. But now, why is he questioning him? Why is John the Baptist questioning if Jesus is the Messiah? Because if you look at the Old Testament scripture, from their perspective, they don't have a New Testament, so it's just simply scripture. If you look at scripture, the prophecies concerning the Messiah talk about several different things, a lot of different things. There's some, some uh, uh, arguments are that there's over 600 prophecies of the Messiah. Some say 300. Um, the, the, the one I heard recently was 333. And I remember that because it's 333 and it's easy to remember. Um, but some of those prophecies are concerning the first coming of Jesus and some of them are concerning the second coming of Jesus. Now, we know today, because we have the New Testament and we have Jesus specifically telling this, that he is going to come back. And when he comes back a second time, this is the second coming of Christ. His first coming, he comes very meek and mild and and he does the two parts. There's two aspects that the Messiah is supposed to fulfill. One is to solve uh, our, the, the sin issue and to solve um, uh, our repentance and our need for restitution with God. The second thing is judgment and wrath. So John the Baptist is questioning if Jesus is the Messiah because a lot of the Jews were expecting the Messiah to come and overthrow Rome. They were expecting in their lifetime to see all the fulfillments of the Messiah, both the first coming and the second coming. They were looking for a political world leader, which is why uh, so many Jews of that day rejected Jesus as the Messiah because he was this loving, tender, caring guy that the kids ran up to. He wasn't some uh, world leader that was going to take on King Herod. He was this passive, um, powerful, but meek. Meek. I love the definition uh, of meekness being power under control. That's Jesus. So John the Baptist is asking this, this question. It's like, are you the Messiah? Is what he's asking. So I want to open up... Um, Yes. Um, so I want to open up. Uh, I used this last time. I'm going to be using this a lot. Um, it's a phenomenal, this entire thing, this, this is a commentary on both Matthew and Mark. Um, but it has, it's so deep uh, with so much uh, information that I love, I love digging into this. One of the things that we have to make sure to do uh, when we're studying the Bible, and this is something that I'm learning now uh, in my master's program, hermeneutics. Strange term, but basically what that means is just proper study of the Bible. The important thing to do, when I read the Bible, the first thing I do, uh, as I assume most people do, is immediately take it 
to, what does this mean to me today, right now? And the important thing to note is that the Bible is the inspired word, inspired word of God. What does that mean? The original writers of the books in their original text are the inspired word of God. What do I mean by that? When Matthew wrote this in the original language, the original words that were written down are the inspired word of God. The translations are not. So when, when we look at this, what we need to do is each of the translations, the NIV, the King James, uh, the ESV, the American Standard Version, uh, all these different translations of the Bible are going back to the original Hebrew, the original Greek, and the original Aramaic, and trying to determine what the original meaning was of that passage and verse. So what we need to do when we study the Bible, that is the reason why you have different translations of the Bible. The different translations, uh, and I'm actually going to do a separate video on this, and I'm probably going to shoot it in the next week or two, and it's going to be all about the different translations of the Bible and what the differences are. The important thing to note is that one of the things that skeptics say is, is that, well, the Bible has been translated so many times. There's so many different versions upon versions upon versions that we really don't know what it actually means. We don't know. It's like the telephone game when you have a, a whole room full of kids in a big circle and you start with a message and you pass it ear to ear to ear to ear. What comes back around is totally different than the, than the original message. So the Bible shouldn't be taken literally. It's just a good teaching tool for us today. No. When, when they do the translations, they go back to the original language of the original scripture, and the goal of each translation is to determine this exact word that Matthew wrote down. What is it that he's trying to say with this word, this sentence, this phrase, this passage? And so what we need to do today when we're studying the scripture is to ask first and foremost, under the historical cultural context, what is Matthew as a tax collector living in Capernaum? What is he saying to the people that he's writing this to? He's writing this, um, I think it's like 66 AD, something like that. I'm just throwing that out there. Um, it's well after Jesus is, uh, ha has risen and, and uh, uh, the cross and all that. This is years later. Matthew is writing to the new church. Matthew is specifically writing down his uh, gospel of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the new church because what's happening is, is that the disciples have been planting churches all throughout the region, all throughout um, the entire uh, Middle East, going all the way to Rome. They're going all over the place and they are building churches, but they can't all be in all places at once. So they're writing down their gospels, the gospel according to Jesus Christ from Matthew's perspective. So Matthew is writing to a new believer that is of Jewish heritage. And that's a very, very important thing to note when you're looking at the context of this is that you need to first look and ask the question, what is Matthew saying to the Jewish Christian of that day? And then after that, you can then say, okay, well, what does that mean to me today? And that's what we're gonna do. That's what we're gonna do. So um, what I wanna read, I wanna read a few things here. 
So first, a little uh, commentary on John the Baptist. Um, according to Josephus, who is a, uh, a Jewish historian of that day, Herod imprisoned John the Baptist in the fortress of Macarius, east of the Dead Sea. John had been imprisoned during Jesus' extensive Galilean ministry, perhaps as long as a year. The one to whom he had pointed, uh, the one who would come in blessing and judgment, had brought healing to many, but it would seem judgment to none. So this, this is what uh, I talked about earlier, this is the fact that John the Baptist was curious because John the Baptist said, this, the coming Messiah is going to bring healing and judgment. And John the Baptist is saying, okay, I'm seeing the healing, but I'm not seeing the judgment. He brought healing to many, he's talking about Jesus, but it would seem judgment to none, not even to those who had immorally and unlawfully confined the Baptist in a cruel prison, doubtless made more unbearable for its contrast with his accustomed freedom. So what is this saying? What this is saying is, is that John the Baptist is, is a little frustrated um, and a little bit uh, questioning if Jesus is the Messiah because he was supposed to be this political world leader that is going to overthrow Rome, and yet here's John the Baptist in prison for up to a year by King Herod. And ultimately, we're going to see in Matthew 14, um, John the Baptist gets beheaded um, by King Herod. So that provides some historical context here about, about John. But what I want to do now, it's important to keep these things in mind um, as we move forward. So um, let's continue reading. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. I find this really interesting, and I just got to stop right here and just make a note. So Jesus is sitting there, and he's teaching in Galilee, right? So he, he no doubt has a large group in front of him. And then two of the disciples, I don't know if it's two, um, it says disciples, so we don't know how many there are, of John the Baptist, say, John the Baptist is questioning whether you're the Messiah or not. And he's in the middle. He's got a group of people in front of him. If I were in Jesus' perspective, and I'm sitting here and I'm teaching to these followers that are listening to every word that I say, and someone comes from uh, John the Baptist, who is a, a predecessor, uh, John the Baptist built his ministry, paved the way for Jesus, as soon as John the Baptist leaves, the, the, the normal human thing to do would actually be to talk yourself up, to, to talk about, well, I am the Messiah, and, and, and this is the reason why, because you just had to defend yourself against uh, John the Baptist. But I love that what Jesus does, I mean, obviously Jesus is, he is fully man, but he's fully God. And so to make that comparison, I just like to put myself in those shoes just to see the contrast. So what does Jesus say? He talks him up and he explains who John the Baptist is. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind. A reed swayed by the wind is simply the idea of just uh, someone who is very, uh, uh, goes with the flow of the political climate and says whatever you want to hear. If not, what did you go to see? A man dressed in fine clothes. Fine clothes here, it actually references the, the original text. Um, it means um, fancy duds, basically, but also uh, almost uh, soft clothing, almost effeminate is actually the, the, some connotations to that. No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. 
And that might actually be a shot on King Herod, who has uh, John the Baptist locked up. But let me continue. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one whom about it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What? I read that just the other day and I was sitting there talking to my wife and I was just like, I just, I don't. Like, what does this even mean? What does this mean? Verse 11 is, is an odd verse. And just in reading it in context, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That Jesus is saying that of all humans, no one has been born greater than John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is greater than Moses, is greater than King David, greater than Abraham, greater than Joseph. That's what Jesus is saying. And then after that, he adds and says, um, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. So he's the greatest born among women. He's the greatest human that's ever been born uh, outside of Adam and outside of Jesus. And yet he's least in the kingdom of heaven. And I honestly, I was stumped by that. I, I really was. And so I opened up the commentary from a group of um, people who are far smarter than me who've pulled from a lot of different references. John was not only a prophet, but more than a prophet. In what respect? In this, not only was he like other Old Testament prophets. Now let's pause just right there. The Old Testament prophets, you have a whole series of the prophets who this is a period of time in which Israel was led by the prophets. Prophets were individuals that were put in place by God and were directed by God, and they then led Israel. So they are the leaders of the Jewish nation for that time period, okay? Not only was he, like other Old Testament prophets, a direct spokesman for God to call the nation to repentance, but he himself was also the subject of prophecy, the one who, according to scriptures, would announce the day of Yahweh. That's uh, God, uh, Christ. And that's uh, Malachi 3.1. Um, Elijah uh, prepares the way for the great and the dreadful day of Yahweh. So, And that's an important thing to note, the great and dreadful. That's talking about that judgment. And that's, again, what John the Baptist wasn't seeing, and so he was questioning it. Let me continue. While the Old Testament prophets doubtless contributed to the corpus of uh, revolution, revelation, excuse me, that pointed to Messiah. I'm going to start that sentence again. While the Old Testament prophets doubtless contributed to the corpus of revolution that pointed to the Messiah, they did not serve as immediate forerunners. This is what makes John greater than a prophet, indeed the greatest born of women, the greatest human being. Okay, so let me explain. He is a prophet of God, meaning that he is calling the nation to repentance and he's leading uh, Israel. But unlike anybody who has ever lived before, John the Baptist has the privilege of being the one to pave the way for the Messiah. That is the reason why 
He is the greatest born among humans because God, in all his greatness, Yahweh, has come down to earth to be among us. And John the Baptist is the one who gets to, to tell that. That's why he's the greatest born among women. Now, in what way then is the least in the kingdom greater than John the Baptist? That's the second half of that. Uh, how is John the Baptist least? The answer must not be in terms of mere privilege, namely the least are greater because they live uh, to see the kingdom actually inaugurated, but in terms of the greatness already established for John. He was the greatest of the prophets because he pointed most unambiguously to Jesus. Nevertheless, even the least in the kingdom is greater yet because living after the crucial, revelatory, eschatological events have occurred, he or she points to Jesus still more unambiguously than John the Baptist. What they're saying here is that after John the Baptist, we have the new covenant. And after Jesus uh, ascends into heaven, you have the new covenant. You have salvation in Christ. You have the new, uh, the whole new system. And so because of that, he is still, John the Baptist is still part of the older system. The issue here is not John's personal salvation, but his place in the scheme of salvation history. For all his crucial role as herald of the kingdom of heaven, John, together with all the prophets and godly people of the Old Testament, belongs essentially to the old era, not the new. So that's the explanation that uh, the Expositor's Bible commentary gives for that, uh, uh, for 11.11. Let's continue on. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subject to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. That's another one that's question, That's an interesting one. Okay, so from the days of John the Baptist until now, it sounds like some massive time frame, but it's not. It's a very short period of time. Why? John the Baptist, his ministry only lasted for a short period of time, maybe a few years, and then John the Baptist is now in prison. His ministry, so you can say from John the Baptist's ministry until now, we're talking just a handful of years, maybe three years. So what Jesus is saying is, is that in the past three years, the kingdom of heaven has been subject to violence and violent people have been raiding it. There is some talk that, that this is actually suggesting that we as believers in the kingdom of heaven are supposed to be violent. But that, that violent to the extent of that we're supposed to be forceful with the truth and with the gospel, but that, that does not fit in any of the historical, cultural context or in the literal context of anything that you're looking at here. That just doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. But what does fit is that if you are looking at the context of the Jews of this day, Jesus is talking about the religious elite who are battling, Jesus says violently, he's talking about the Pharisees. And what's going to come through uh, into chapter 13 is we're going to see um, a dichotomy, a uh, uh, accusation and response from the Pharisees and back and forth with Jesus. And, and we're going to get into this even more. So let me continue. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. 
So that's a whole other study, but an interesting study to do is comparing Elijah to John the Baptist. They're very, very similar, even down to the clothing, what they ate, how they, uh, uh, the, the, the call of repentance for the kingdom of heaven is, is near, all of that for repentance, what they dressed like, what they said, their character, how they acted. There's a lot of similarities. And Jesus is in fact saying that if you'll take it as such, he is the equivalent of Elijah. But let's continue on. Uh, we're on 11.16. To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he is a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say here is a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. What is this little chunk saying? Okay, what is, What's being said here, what Jesus is saying is, is that this generation, he's talking about at that time, has witnessed so much. They've witnessed John the Baptist out in the desert and they witnessed him calling for repentance. They've witnessed Jesus healing and doing all these miraculous signs, and yet they don't listen. And Jesus makes the comparison, the analogy of they're like school kids that, you know, play the pipes, that's talking about dancing for, uh, at a wedding feast, and then you have saying a dirge, that's the idea of at a, uh, a funeral, and the, the people aren't swayed. The people aren't swayed one way or the other. That's what he's talking about. And we're now going to go on and continue into this and look at uh, Jesus have um, real strong negative words for these towns that he teaches in that just aren't swayed, that don't listen, that have hardened hearts. So let's continue on. Uh, we're on verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Charazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have re repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remain to this day. Sodom would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. These are harsh words. And here's a question for you. Are we better today? The towns, our society today? What happened in Sodom? What happened in Sodom? So that's an Old Testament story about how God comes to Abraham and says that he is going to destroy Sodom. And Abraham says to God, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And they have this dialogue back and forth about how many righteous will it take uh, for you to destroy? If you find 10 uh, righteous there, will you destroy them with the wicked? And God then makes the promise that he will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And this is where you see Lot who is not a, a, a biblical man, not a follower of God, but he is still considered righteous because he believed in God, which is interesting. If Lot has a chance, I think we all do, and that's a whole other discussion. But I do want to point out, this is an argument for a pre-tribulation rapture. What does that mean? And I've talked about this before. 
the rapture is uh, God's calling up of his believers, of his church. And that is scripture. It's in Thessalonians where God says that we, the believers, are going to be caught up and meet him in the skies right? So there is internal debate about whether this happens. The rapture happens pre-tribulation. The tribulation is the seven-year period where God's judgment and wrath are brought down on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. In the middle, which is called mid-trib or post-trib, after the tribulation, you see examples all throughout the Bible in which God pulls out, saves, rescues the righteous before the wrath, before judgment comes down. So that's a tangent. <laughs> Let's continue on. Um, so now we are getting on to uh, verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned men and revealed them to little children. This is the same thing I've mentioned before. When he's saying little children here, he's saying young believers is the idea. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. There's a bunch of stuff right here, and I want to camp out on this for just a second. Uh, first of all, Jesus is our one and only intercessor in between us and God. He is, uh, the Bible talks about the fact that he stands in the court of judgment and stands as our defense attorney uh, before God. He is the only intercessor between us and God. And that's what Jesus is saying here is that no one knows the Father except the Son. He is our one uh, intercessor in between us and God. This is where you, you can have some differings of opinions. Um, the Catholic faith does believe that you can pray to the saints, um, to past people who have died, to Mary. You can pray to all these different people uh, who have been sainted uh, to intercede on your behalf to God. That's not what the Bible teaches. and that's, I'm just pointing that out. Uh, another thing to note, those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is one of the few passages that gives food to the argument of what's called predestination. This is an internal debate. And what I mean by that, there are doctrine, which are the essential fundamentals of Christianity, and I'm not going to go through and explain all of them, but the most basic one is, is that Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, and that he went to the cross, died in place of us uh, to cover all of our sins, and that after uh, being fully killed and dead, he rose from the grave three days later and now sits in heaven as our intercessor. That is the fundamental elements of Christianity. Now you have non-essential debates. And one of those is this question of predestination. What is predestination? This is this question of the book of life, right? So there's the book of life that's spoken about in Revelation, in which if your name is written in the book of life, you don't go to the great white throne judgment. Uh, you go to the Bema seat judgment, which means that you have the protection of Christ. 
if your name is in the book of life. So this question of predestination is this question of, I made the decision personally to start a relationship with Christ uh, in October of 1999, and I've mentioned that before. Now, predestination would say, I was already in the book of life. Before I made that decision, God already knew that I was going to decide to become a believer, and therefore it was predestined that I was going to believe. The problem with this argument is that it almost implies that I never even had a choice. And this is where you get into this debate. There's also on this uh, debate spectrum, you have this question of can we lose our salvation? If you say the prayer when you are in elementary school and confess uh, and accept Christ, do you have that covering for the rest of your life? Or can you lose it? That's another very strong debate that is held within uh, the church. And I have my opinions on that, um, but I'm not going to go into those because that'd be another tangent. And perhaps we'll come back to that. But this is one of those passages where Jesus is saying that God knows and has selected those who are going to believe. And this is what he says, is uh, those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That's the idea there. And now we come to my favorite passage of all of 11. Uh, which is verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, I spoke about it before, that proper hermeneutics, as the fancy academic term says, the proper thing that we're supposed to do in truly trying to determine what, to try to determine what God's original intent was to Matthew in inspiring these words. What is God trying to say? So what does Matthew write down and what is he intending to say to his audience of that day? And that changes the, the interpretation of this verse. If you're looking at it today versus looking at it as a new believer who is in Jewish Israel, okay? What am I talking about here? Well, at this point in history, a Jewish person who is, has accepted Christ and has started down this path is surrounded by the Jewish culture. And you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. These are three different groups, all actually quite different, but they have all of these rules that you're supposed to follow. And Jesus is constantly going back and forth with this group of Pharisees. The Pharisees have so many rules. And we're going to see in 12, we're going to get into, at the very beginning of 12, we're going to talk about the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are going to challenge Jesus because they, they, they're walking through a field on the Sabbath and they take uh, some kernels of grain, rub them together, and then eat, eat the barley, eat the, the, the whole grain of wheat. And the Pharisees are like, aha, blasphemy. You are, are, are breaking, not blasphemy, you're breaking the Sabbath. You're working on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to do that. That is not okay. And then again, uh, on the Sabbath, Jesus heals a man who has uh, a withered hand. And we're going to get into that. I don't want to steal the thunder from next week. But it's this whole uh, battle going back and forth where you have those that are the religious elite who are seen as being these people that you're supposed to aspire to be, 
create this really harsh religious way of life. So Jesus is actually saying to them, come to me all you who are weary and heavy burdened by this religious talk that all of these rules and all of these things that you have to do, you can't eat this, you can't say this, you can't go do this. Jesus created a whole new covenant that covers that. And so what he's saying is he's, he's saying that old way is gone. Come and follow me. My, my way is so much more simple, so much more light. I will bring you peace and you'll find rest. So the takeaway that we need to look at is, is that Jesus is actually saying, again, to the new believer of that day that's surrounded by the Pharisees and this religious elite, I will give you rest. But to us today, we're also heavy laden. We are also heavy burdened uh, in, in, in a totally different way, but he still gives us that same peace. And I spoke about it at the very beginning of this, is that that peace that we saw mentioned in Matthew 10, uh, verses 34, where Jesus says he doesn't come to bring peace but a sword, the peace that he does bring is in our hearts. It's to the believer because you're at peace. It doesn't matter what hardship, what you go through, it doesn't matter because you can be at peace and you can find rest in Jesus why? Because you're right with God. So if, if you aren't right with God and you aren't a follower of Jesus, why not? Honestly, why not? This passage is, it, it's so true. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus is offering that. And I've said it before, um, but I'm gonna pray it right now again. Uh, for that person who is not a believer, who's watching this right now, who wants to, it's very simple. It's very easy to become a believer and a follower of Jesus. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, spell it out and make it very clear. You need to believe in your heart and profess with your mouth out loud that Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, and that he died for your sins and accept that gift that he has made freely for you and for me and for everybody, and you're saved. That's it, that's it. So I'm gonna pray that prayer right now, uh, and if you're a, a, a believer of 20 years, pray it along with me, because uh, it's always good to pray that prayer over and over again. Now the one thing that I, w I do wanna say is that I don't wanna paint a false picture here. Jesus is saying that his yoke is, is light and his burden is easy. What he's saying by that is that it's not complicated. The Bible was written by blue-collar fishermen uh, as well as others, but simple-minded people for simple-minded readers. It does seem complicated, but when you take it on the most surface level, it's very digestible. But it does make it clear that as a believer, you're not suddenly going to no longer sin. And as a believer, you're not suddenly gonna have all the answers. Uh, and it doesn't mean that you're suddenly not gonna have anything go wrong in your life. And all of a sudden, everything's gonna be peachy and roses from here on out. No, no, in fact, I would argue the opposite of that. But you will find joy and peace in your heart going through that 
I've been a Christian for 20 years, and it is a challenging life. Why? Because you are surrounded by this world, and this world is is in dichotomy, is in constant friction with God. And so you are daily have to acknowledge the fact that you can't do it on your own and that you need God. So the peace that I have and the joy that I have is knowing the end and knowing that uh, it doesn't matter, that the, the hardships that I face today, that Jesus has already won. And I could keep talking about this for hours and hours and hours, but I got to wrap it up. So I'm going to pray that prayer. And, and if, if you're a believer, pray along uh, with me. Uh, and if you've never prayed this prayer, that's awesome. Pray, pray it with me out loud. <sighs> Lord God, I invite you into my life. And I acknowledge the sacrifice that you made on the cross. I surrender my life to you. And I ask that you come and fill me up. Thank you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for coming down to earth. Thank you for your word. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. That's it. If you just prayed that prayer for the first time, you are saved. You are a believer. It's very exciting. I would challenge you, if you just prayed that prayer for the first time, let somebody know. In this pandemic age that we live, so many people are doing church in isolation on their own. Who do you know that's a believer? Reach out to them. Let them know. Find a church that's local to you and get involved with it. This Bible study that we do, it airs every Wednesday. Dig in. Dig deeper. Go back and watch previous studies. Start a study of your own and, and digging into Scripture. It's exciting stuff. It really, really is exciting stuff. But it's important that you get connected and have fellowship with others. And that's really hard to do. You can always reach out to me. In the, in the midst of this pandemic, it's just hard to do. It's hard to have that fellowship. But you can reach out to me. My email is dave at davebigler.com. I'm happy to connect you with the church or just have a conversation with you. So that's it for this week. Next week, we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to start out with looking at uh, the Pharisees continuing to accuse Jesus of breaking the law. In this situation, he's talking, that this, the, the Pharisees are accusing him of breaking the Sabbath law. So thank you very much. Have a phenomenal week. I love you guys, and I'll see you next time.